Let us pray. O Lord God, calm our hearts and our minds, and may the words of my mouth uh, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I like new TV shows and I like new movies, but uh, I'll begin dating myself already this morning. 31 years ago, a movie came out called City Slickers. Do you remember the movie City Slickers? You sure do. Some of you do. I, it's a classic, or I consider it a classic. Recently, I rewatched it with the children and decided that maybe it's not as classic as I thought. But still, you might remember the one character played by Jack Pounce, the late Jack Pounce. Slick, right? Slick. And here's Slick, the, the cowboy at home on the range. And now here comes the city slickers, right? And what are the city slickers out to do? They're looking for, if you remember it, they're looking for something. And, and Slick tells them that he has the secret to the one thing. All right, hold that there. The one thing, city slickers. 20 years later, or 20 years ago, rather, uh, a whole new genre of entertainment came out, uh, not so much in the movies, but in the TV side, reality TV shows. Whether you like them or not, they're here. They're part of the landscape now. But in 2009, a new show aired, which channel it was on, called Hoarders. Do you remember this story? If in City Slickers they're looking for the one thing, in Hoarders, in Hoarders, you have people, due to a proclivity, maybe even an illness of hoarding, they're looking for... One more thing. And one more thing still. And I believe that when you put the two of these together, it pretty well sums up every one of us. At the right time and in the right place, in certain seasons, we're looking for the one thing. And many other days of our lives, we're looking for one more thing. We search out that one thing in the big moments of life, right? I, I can think of uh, one thing. I can think of last fall. Megan. My Megan, my wife, not here today, but fighting against cancer. I can tell you very clearly on that day, the one thing I wanted for her all of those days in that season, and you could think of, of you and your loved ones, right? There's times when life is tough enough where we know the one thing we're seeking after, and we go searching. But there's other times in life, probably more just the day-to-day, or the day-to-day when we're searching for one more thing, and one more thing still. We've got a lot. We've got work, school, family, kids, home, church. But have we done enough? Do I have enough? And so we go on adding one more thing and one more thing still. I seem to recall that Jesus had something to say about both of these. So a loose translation of Matthew 6, 33. Seek the one right thing, and all the other one more things will be added unto you. It's something like this that Paul takes up with us today then as well. Listen to what Paul, who has many things to say to the church, listen nevertheless what he says. He said it in 1 Corinthians 1, and now here at the beginning of 2, he says it again. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now this is kind of confusing, right? As I already said, Paul speaks to the church about many things. He speaks to the problem of sin, of individual sins. He'll go on to speak about good things like marriage and family and children. He'll speak about us before the church, us before government. Paul seems to never have a shortage of things to say. 
And yet he claims here that in his time with the church in Corinth, that he knew nothing amongst among them except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul will go on in this letter to a very famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the single greatest chapter in all of the Bible concerning the resurrected and living Christ. So here's the question. How can Paul then suggest here, not just suggest, state emphatically so, that his focus is on the crucifixion of Jesus alone? Well, maybe I can offer three quick helps to this question. First, this is the Paul who was converted by the resurrected Christ himself. Paul is very in tune with the fact that Jesus is resurrected. He is alive. Second, this is Paul who certainly heard the story of Thomas. May well have known him. How the resurrected Christ showed Thomas the marks of the crucifixion in his hands and in his side. And, and so we could say, third of all, that maybe this is exactly what Paul is saying. I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the risen and yet the forever crucified one. It's another text. It's another study. It's maybe another sermon for another day. But when we go to the book of Revelation, though we will go in the new life and be made perfect, yet there will be only one who stands among us with scars. And it will be Jesus. Jesus, the resurrected, and yet forever crucified one. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the one thing. It's a package deal. It's the center of salvation. It's the center of our new life in Christ. It is the center of our daily life and vocations. But how exactly is it central? Well, if we ask that question, one way we can approach it is by consider doing away with it. What would happen if we would erase the resurrection? What would happen if we erase the crucifixion? Well, without the resurrection, Jesus is just what? He's a dead guy. There's many of them. Maybe he did things before, left a legacy. Maybe we could say he established some sort of path. But ultimately, dead people don't do much. His claims would be empty and our faith would be in vain, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And without the crucifixion, well, I suppose we could uh, then focus on Jesus, the good teacher, a rabbi, a life coach, and yet you and I would still be mired in our sin. The debt would still stand against us before God, our Father. Still, though, some would love to have that Jesus, just the teacher. We would look to him and we'd probably label him kind and generous and somewhat easy to follow, but I would suggest to you that even such a reading of Jesus' teaching is quite selective. For this Jesus taught some pretty wild and difficult things. Consider Matthew 18. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Remember this part? Tear it out, pluck it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This Jesus is a hard Jesus to follow. We just chalk him up to a teacher. For every man has sinned with hands and feet and eye, and yet I know of no Christian who has amputated those or plucked out his eye. 
Someone once pointed out, in fact, it was a theologian by the name of Machen, he pointed out in 1923 in a book, he said this, he says at this, if, if we take away the death and resurrection of Christ, then at best we have a leader, a model. We were just talking about that. And that would make Jesus the first Christian and the perfect Christian. And now we are all Christians trying to be perfect like him. Perfect. Boy, that's, that's quite a road to go, isn't it? That's not an easy path. That's a damning path, at least for me. But if this Jesus, the forever crucified and risen one, is not a Christian, but instead is the Christ who makes us Christians, well, then there is salvation for you and for me. For this Jesus was cut off. He was plucked out so that we never would be and aren't and haven't been and never will be plucked out and thrown away ourselves. That famous text from Isaiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul knew that if you give up the death and the resurrection of Jesus, if you give up the forever crucified and risen one living with us now, if you give that up, then you are left with a different program entirely, a different religion, a different faith. And the whole thing, all of it, will hang on you and hang on me, our actions and our efforts. But if, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is at the heart and center of it all, then you will have the one thing, Christ and his forgiveness. And as Martin Luther says, and if you have that one thing, Christ and his forgiveness, then you get all of the riches of heaven. You also get life and salvation. So I've done a little bit of if-then this morning. If, put those ifs away, and indeed declare to you what Paul declares to us, that Christ did die for sinners and you qualify. He died for you, and on the third day he rose and he lives for you, and he lives for me and mine as well, granting us his promises and gifts. This insistent focus on the forever crucified, risen, and now living with us Jesus shapes us, guards us, and gifts us. For God has given you the one needful thing, Jesus, his son, and it is central to all. But in a 31-year-old movie, talked about shows that came out nearly 20 years ago. I like to think of one other instance. It was August 2005. I was a young man. I was in my 20s. Seen some 20-year-old guys in the room. I was in my 20s in those days. It was pre-smartphones. I had corroborated that this morning. Caleb Keith. It was pre-smartphones. August 2005, but it was the national news. It was a real going over and over again. It was a hurricane in New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. And what did you see over and over again, at least in my mind, as I play the reels back? It was a National Guard helicopter, or several of them, hovering over people's homes, plucking them up off their rooftops. Now, I do not know what happened when they came inside, but I always imagine it goes something like this. Come in here, sit down. I'm buckling you in. Don't touch. Right? And what do the people say to that? 
Absolutely. Yeah, think of those same people if you'd gone just two or three days before, walked up to them on the street and said, sit down here and don't move. What would they have said to you? Well, I don't know if I should repeat it now, but they, uh, they would have probably told you exactly where to go. Life changes, doesn't it, when it's the moment of salvation? When it's the moment of salvation and your need of saving and your Savior's there before you, and it's undeserved by you and yet it's granted to you, then all of those things that are said to you, you say, yes, absolutely. You even give it that church word, amen. But I can also think of that Hurricane Katrina and those helicopters and think that if those helicopters had remained in the air long enough after the moment of salvation, had been there long enough, then those in the back, people like you and me, might have been tempted at some point to think that this wasn't the rescue mission, but this is a tour helicopter, right? Hey, pilot, do you think you could go over there? Do you think I could give you some instructions? I love thinking about that moment because it's safe when the moment before us, the day we're in even right now, is the day of salvation. And that is the day today, even for you and for me. We will pray that this salvation, this good news of Jesus, will make it to more still this day, and in fact it will. For God's word never goes out and comes back void. It always gains more people, adopts more brothers and sisters into this church that we are a part of. And yet even today in this church, for us, it is the day of salvation where we are being saved and he is the Savior. He is the Christ and we are his Christians. And this is safe and it is right and it is good. The centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shapes our churches. In our churches we have an insistence on never graduating from this moment of salvation. But every Sunday, in fact, we come, we confess who we are. Lord, it's me again, your sinner David, right? And he says, yes, it's you again, David, the one I've made to be my saint. He does it for all of you. And so we never graduate from the cross. It is at the center of it all. It keeps us from wandering off into moralisms, where we would take Jesus, who, who was our Savior, was that Christ, and try and turn him into our tour pilot. Maybe we turn him into a new lawgiver, a new Moses, instead of the new and better Adam that he is. Keeping today in church always the day of salvation keeps us from looking down our noses at others and what great sinners they are. Rather, we come, we confess our sin, and we say to God, God, it would be great if you added more sinners to this midst that with us they might bend the knee, and with us they might receive your forgiveness. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shapes our homes as well. When our kids were young, before Megan and I knew anything, we still don't know much, we said, what are our goals for our family life and our children? Now, my kids could probably read for you a laundry list of goals, I suppose. But when we talked about it then, and as we've talked about it all the years since, we kept it pretty simple. Our goals for our family and for our children were that they would know of God's love for them in Jesus Christ and grow in that love. Sure, love God back, that's great, but that they would know of God's love for them and constantly receive it. Not a generic love, 
but a love born of sacrifice and blood, death and resurrection, and as I said, indeed, that they would love God back. Our second goal is that they love each other and their neighbors. Now, this one's tested a lot at home, right? Tested a lot amongst us in the church that we would love each other and love our neighbors, and yet, here we are again, God's people, sinners being forgiven, sinners being made joyful because of his forgiveness, sinners sharing with others the very same forgiveness and mercy and hope that is given us. Our final goal for our children is that we would see them safely home. This has layers of meaning. It has daily meaning, most certainly, but to see our kids safely home has eternal meaning also. In the year since, we have done right by our children in many ways, but we have failed them in many more. Again, maybe, maybe we can find a Sunday when not only Megan's gone, but I'm gone, and the Ruffner children can read you chapter and verse on that. But the crucified and risen Christ has brought forgiveness to our home and to your homes, to this church, to our friendships as well. He has brought hope to our home as well, the living Jesus, the forever crucified one who never fails us. So here we are at the end. Again, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The very last thing I would point to is how wonderful it is that Paul determined this, right? I decided, I determined. And so I could say to you, may we also decide the same. May we also be determined to know nothing else other than this Jesus and him crucified and risen. But, but even in this, we must admit that we will grow shaky in our decisions. We will falter in our determinations. But the risen Jesus who is in our midst will neither go shaky, nor will he falter. But listen to Paul's other words. He says, Your faith does not rest on the wisdom and decisions and determinations of men, but in the power of God. And the power of God is Christ Jesus. And it was his decision to go the way of death for you and me that brought us salvation. It was his determination to go to the cross to rise on Easter and to grant us peace that is our life and our hope now. And so it is his determination, it is his decision that is our inheritance that is at work in us also. And so we will go our way today again, forgiven. We'll come to church, acknowledge that we are sinners, and yet what an easy acknowledgement that is, because he loves forgiving sinners. He loves declaring us saints. He loves doing that here in this place and in our homes and in all places. God makes it so. Amen.